these days. But um, I got to thinking about weddings a little bit. And according to the Bible, uh, marriage was designed by who? By God himself. And now there's some people these days who want to kind of, you know, fiddle with the definition and so forth. But, but you can't really tamper with something that isn't yours to tamper with, right? I mean, God created things. And I got to thinking about the fact that it was God who presided at the very first wedding, that of Adam and Eve, the first groom and the first bride. And I'm not sure who lit the candles or who threw the rice at that wedding, but it was no doubt a most beautiful wedding and a garden ceremony at that. You know, in the Bible, God defines marriage as a threefold covenant. Did you know that? Not a two-person contract, but a three-person covenant, a solemn pledge between a man, a woman, and their creator. It's a promise of devotion and love and loyalty for a lifetime. You guys just got married, right, a couple weeks ago? And uh, so a lot of newlyweds around here. That covenant marriage is signified with a ring, right, sealed with a kiss, consummated in a one-flesh union, And Proverbs and Malachi tell us this, that at its core, marriage is a covenant. Now, this is not a sermon on marriage today. We do have a family series coming up in a few weeks. But marriage being a covenant takes us where we're going today because we're talking about that very thing, covenant. And covenant is not a recent invention or a new notion. It goes way, 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 way back. And its significance extends beyond marriage. In fact, the Bible describes marriage as being a picture of another sacred pledge, the new covenant. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit later on. So if you've been with us, you know that we're in week five of a series. And the series is called Firm Foundations, Unshakable Truths of the Christian Faith. So it's a series on Christian doctrine. And today we're coming to this fascinating concept of covenant. So you can pull the study guide out of your worship folder, if you will. You can take some notes there if you'd like. I just want to remind us of where we've been so far in this series. We started in week week one noting that God has spoken. And he has spoken through what? Through his word, through the Bible. And we trust and rely on the Bible to tell us the truth about God and about ourselves and about our world and about life. And then we noted in week two that the Bible assumes that God exists. It doesn't try to prove his existence. It just says, in the beginning, God. And uh, it assumes his existence. It reveals God to be a triune being, Father, Son, Spirit, one God, revealed in three persons throughout history. We just sang about that a few moments ago, the Holy Trinity. And we noted that he, the Bible presents him as being sovereign over all things. Our third week, we talked about the fact that God created. He made things, and actually, out of nothing, right? Just spoke, and the universe existed. And that's some serious power when you can create out of nothing. He created um, all things, including his crowning achievement, humans, humankind in the Garden of Eden. He created mankind to know him. But then last weekend, we saw where the story took a turn, and we we saw that man rebelled, right? And it was kind of painful, to think about sin and rebellion and how that has infected our race and our world and, you know, just the damage and devastation and destruction that is caused by sin. So that was kind of hard, but we were reminded that sin is very serious. And then on the heels of that bad news, we thankfully today come to this fifth foundation stone of the Christian faith, 
the wonderful truth that God did not decide to abandon us because of our sin, but rather God made some promises. Through a series of covenant promises, God pledged to deal with man's sin and form a special people for himself. And we should be extremely glad of that. Yes? Thank God for that. So we're going to talk about covenant today, and it's, it's an extremely interesting and intriguing concept. It's one of those things that once you have the eyes to see it, covenant, you then, then begin to see it all throughout the Bible. It's everywhere. In fact, your Bible is divided into two big sections, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We usually use the word testament, Old and New Testament, but it's the same word. It's the covenant, and that tells us that it's these two major covenants that have been playing out in God's plan, God's unfolding plan of redemption. So we're going to learn some things about covenants today. It's a deep subject. We can only scratch the surface. Someday I'd like to do a whole series on, on the covenants of God. It's, it's so rich. Today I'm just going to give you four big thoughts, okay? Four big thoughts about covenant. Here we go. Number one, first big thought is this. When sin entered the world, God had already planned to deal with it and fulfill his purpose in the world by making and keeping a series of covenant promises. And we all need to realize that Adam and Eve's sin did not catch God off guard. He wasn't like wringing his hands, you know, oh no, oh no, my plan is shot. You know, what am I going to do now? Why did I ever create that stupid tree? You know, that, that was not his thought. The Bible tells us that it was already in his heart to make provision to deal with the sin of mankind even before he created the world. In fact, just after Adam and Eve sinned, God hinted at his plan for dealing with sin. He did it when he was cursing the serpent, the snake who tempted Adam and Eve. God levied a curse against, it, against that serpent. It's recorded in Genesis 3.15. Here's God talking to the snake. He says this, I will put enmity, hostility, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or literally crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, theologians call that the proto-euangelion. Proto means first, euangelion means gospel. The first announcement of the gospel way back in Genesis chapter 3 and also the first covenant promise. It's interesting, the word translated offspring here is actually the Hebrew word for seed. And it tells us that something very unusual was being promised because we all know that the seed of procreation comes from the man, not the woman. But here God says the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent while having his heel bruised which is interesting because that's what happens to a man who is being crucified. The heel gets bruised. The point is this. God anticipated sin entering our world, and when it happened, he promised that one day a virgin-born man, the seed of the woman, would come and demolish the work of Satan, the work of the tempter. Not long after giving that promise in Genesis 3.15, God would do something else that would hint at how he planned to do this. He would shed the blood of an animal 
and used that animal's skin to give Adam and Eve a more reliable set of clothing than what they had chosen for themselves, right? Which was what? Fig leaves. They were trying to cover their own sin and shame with fig leaves. Well, after a while, fig leaves don't hold up so well. Uh, They start to crumble, and God, hinting at what he would do in the future, killed an animal, shed its blood, gave them the the animal skins as a covering, and it, it gave us a clue that his covenant promise would ultimately be fulfilled by what? The spilling of blood. Let's step back a little bit. What is a covenant? When, when the Bible uses the word covenant, what, what's it talking about? Well, in the Bible, a covenant is a solemn and serious agreement between two parties that defines their relationship and, and defines it as being special. That's why the marriage covenant pictures it. It's, it's a special relationship, and it always includes promises, unbreakable, unshakable, solid promises. Bless you. Now, it's never a casual thing when God makes covenants. It's never a casual thing. It's always a serious thing. That's why in the Old Testament, covenants were always ratified with the sprinkling of blood. It's life and death type stuff when we talk about covenants. Covenant places two parties in a very special, unique, and exclusive relationship that's unlike other relationships. Now listen, when God is involved in making a covenant with man, guess who gets to initiate the terms? God does, right? He's the owner. He's the creator of all things. And we see that because of that, he's the one who gets to define the relationship. He's the one who gets to set the terms and the conditions for receiving the promised blessings of the covenant. Does that make sense? He gets to lay that down. And when God makes a pledge as part of a covenant, he guarantees those promises by throwing the full weight of his name and his person behind those promises. Now, there was a a day in our country when a handshake sealed an agreement, right? Uh, maybe back before the Brady Bunch era, you know, and you could enter into an agreement, even a financial agreement, and if you shook on it, it was like, well, that's binding then. That's, that's that person's word. Well, imagine receiving a covenant promise and having God shake on it or God sign his name to it in blood. That's what we're talking about here. That's what we're talking about. And because of that, our, God's people, God's covenant people can always feel safe and secure and confident that God is going to stay faithful to us. He's going to remain devoted to us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And even if we are faithless, the Bible says he will remain faithful. That's covenant. That's covenant love. And it's wonderful. I hope you know God's covenant love in your life. That's point one. Point two is this, there is an essential element and ultimate goal of all of God's covenants. He's aiming for something when God makes a covenant. So I've put a bunch of scripture together, I'm going to read it, and I want to see if you can pick up the theme, okay, that lets us know what God's goal, what his aim is when he makes these promises. So just listen, Genesis 17, uh, speaking to Abraham, and I will give you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Exodus 6, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. 
Jeremiah 7, but this command I gave them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people. Walk in all the way that I command you that it may be well with you. Ezekiel 36, you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Do you hear it? Do you hear the theme? Even in the New Testament, it's reiterated again and again, like in 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And then look at the end of the story. Here, here, here's the conclusion of the story. Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Stringing all those verses together like that makes it pretty clear, doesn't it? There's this golden thread woven all throughout the Bible. Listen, understanding this will tie the Bible together for you in your mind. The Bible's a big book. There's a lot of stuff in there, but if you get this, you, you'll get the big picture, and it's this. God has always wanted a special people for himself. Always. A family, if you will. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's covenant language. I'll belong to you. You'll belong to me. We'll belong to each other. It has that that marriage kind of feel to it, committed covenant, I'm yours, you're mine, a special people for himself. That's always been his plan. The Father's been working throughout all history to form a big, multi-ethnic, multilingual covenant family to dwell with forever in a cool place, a specially prepared place, really a remake, a recreation of the garden of Eden, but in Revelation, it's not just a garden, it's also a city and it's a paradise. It's a garden city paradise that the Father and His beloved Son are designing, Hebrews tells us, and building for us. God has always wanted a family to dwell with forever, and the good news is we can be a part of it. And I hope you are. I hope you are. Well, here's the third fact about God's covenants. The Bible reveals at least five covenants that God has established with mankind. And you say, wait a second, I thought you said there were two, like the old covenant and the new covenant. Now you're telling us there's five, you're confusing me. Well, just hold on. <laughs> we'll get there, I hope it'll make sense. There are five, maybe six. Theologians go back and forth and debate this. Whole books have been written on each of these covenants, and you'll need to do some more study on your own. It's a fascinating study. But each of these five covenants has some key features that I'm going to briefly highlight for you. So here we go. First covenant, God's covenant with a man named Noah. Noah, okay? Noah and his family. And you know the story, right? So God creates the world. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He tells them, be fruitful and multiply. They do that. But Adam's descendants grew increasingly violent and increasingly wicked and sinful to the point where in Genesis chapter 6, God looks at the earth, he assesses mankind's condition, and he says this, all the imaginations of man's heart are only evil continually. Yikes. That's called a race gone sour. <laughs> and God was so offended and so grieved 
that he actually, it actually says he became sorry that he created man. And he basically decided to wipe out that wicked race and start over, kind of reboot the whole thing with one man and his family, a man who had found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and his name was Noah. In Genesis 6, God makes a covenant with Noah. He says this, I have determined, Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth, so make yourself an ark. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Now, sometimes we portray the story of Noah and the flood and all the animals as kind of this cute little childhood story, but it's really not. It's a terrifying story of the judgment of God reminds us that God hates sin, and there comes a time when his patience with sin runs out, right? And the cup of sin is full, and he pours out his judgment. But the story should also encourage us and encourage our hearts by showing us God's preserving, rescuing, covenant love. After the floodwaters subsided, God came to Noah after he had gratefully offered a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. And in Genesis 9, it's kind of a two-part covenant. So here's the second part. God says to Noah, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you, all future generations. I have set my, what? My bow, my rainbow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and and the earth. So we learn that God's covenants contained promises, promised blessings, and many of them have a sign that accompanies, accompanies it. Also, as we'll see, each covenant is incomplete by itself, kind of inadequate to resolve man's sin, and so each of these covenants points us in some way to Christ. So for this one, the, the, the Noah covenant, what are the promised blessings? What does God promise in his covenant with Noah? Well, First, protection of Noah and his family through the flood, right? Preserving their lives. And later, the pledge to never again destroy the earth with a flood. What was the sign of the covenant? Well, the first was the ark itself was a sign of God's preserving grace. And then, of course, the rainbow. The rainbow was a sign. Where's the connection to Jesus in this covenant? Well, think about it. While we would certainly agree that all people on the planet deserve to be judged for their sin, ultimately God will rescue his people from judgment and preserve their lives through Christ. So when you read the Bible, the ark is really a type of Christ. Did you know that? Because it was the ark that preserved the lives of Noah and his family through the flood, right? And so I'm in the ark, I'm in Jesus. He's the one who will keep us safe and preserve our lives through the judgment of God. And I wonder if you're in the ark today. I hope so. Well, Noah's descendants. So God reboots the whole thing. He starts over with another family. So they were all perfect after that and righteous, right? Man, within a few months, Noah goes out and gets naked and drunk like a hillbilly on vacation, 
he does stupid stuff. It appears some sexual stuff occurred. It was kind of disgusting. And so once again, humanity fills the earth and multiplies, but sin abounds once again. But this time, no flood because of God's covenant with Noah. But what, what would happen is this. God would once again choose one man and his family to represent him to the world. And that man's name was Abraham. Abram. Abram who became Abraham. So God chooses a man again, first Noah, then Abraham, and he, he directs this Middle Eastern man, a pagan guy really, just sovereignly chooses him and says, I want you to relocate your clan to a land that I'll show you. So he ends up going to Canaan. One night God took Abram outside and he said, look up at the sky. And he made some incredible covenant promises to this man too. They're recorded in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, just listen. God brought him outside and said, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now Abraham and his wife had no children. They were barren at that point. At that point. But it says, and he believed the Lord and he, and he counted it to him as righteousness. A little aside here, people often wonder, how did people get saved in the Old Testament? through faith, same way as you get saved in the New Testament. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I'm giving this land. Years later, it hadn't happened yet. Abraham's faith was sagging, and God appeared to him again. When he was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Head-spinning stuff that God was saying to Abraham. So what are, what are the promised blessings of this covenant, of the covenant with Abraham? Well, numerous descendants, right? More than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. A homeland for them to live in, in Canaan and worldwide blessing through his offspring. All nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. You'll be the father of many nations. The sign of this covenant was circumcision. And Abram said, Noah got the rainbow. <laughs> Could I swap with Noah? I mean, how? anyway. Circumcision, the sign of the covenant to Abraham. What's the connection to Jesus Christ? Well, people from all nations will ultimately blessed, be blessed with salvation through the offspring of Abraham, right? See, Abram's descendants make up the Jewish nation, but this promise was that all nations would be blessed. Well, that happened through the seed of Abraham, Jesus. So there's a Christ connection there. Well, we know the story, that God did provide a child um, to Abram and his wife Sarah in their old age, a miracle son named Isaac. Isaac grew up. God reaffirmed that covenant with Isaac. Isaac had a son, Jacob. God reaffirmed that covenant with Jacob. And Jacob's clan ended up migrating south from Canaan land down to Egypt through a series of providential events that we studied when we studied the life of Joseph here. 
And down in Egypt, Abraham's descendants, now known as Israel, grew in number to the point where they were perceived as a threat by Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. And he subjected them to slavery, as you know, and God took note that his people were being oppressed and brutalized by the Egyptians and their soldiers. And again, he singled out a man to make a covenant with to deal with that situation. And that man's name was? Moses, right. So Noah, Abraham, Moses. And using Moses as his chosen instrument, God delivered his people out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt, through the Red Sea on dry ground, right? And on down into the Sinai Peninsula. And one day, God called Moses to a meeting. Now, when God calls you to a meeting, you ought to show up on time and be dressed properly and be ready for that meeting. And God said, Moses, I want to meet with you. Come up high on this mountain and we're going to have a conversation. And so Moses did. There on top of Mount Sinai, God and man would enter into it yet another covenant. And this one would have a reach that would extend beyond Moses to all of this nation of Israel, all of Abraham's descendants. Exodus 34, God said, Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels, such as not, have not been created in all the earth or any nation. And all the people among you, among whom you are, the people that you'll be dwelling among, shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And then he says, Take care, Moses, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Oh, so God's covenant with Moses and the children of Israel was to be an exclusive covenant like a husband and wife. You know, don't go making a covenant with the peoples that you dwell among. That would be a violation of our covenant. Tear down their altars, he said, and break their pillars and cut down their Asherim, which were like idol, totem idols that they worshipped. For you shall worship no other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he, Moses, was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So this new iteration of God's covenant with his chosen people included some promised blessings. What were they? Well, first, God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, right? That was unconditional. God just chose to do it, and he led them out of bondage. And then, if they kept his covenant, if they lived in obedience to his covenant laws, then they would experience continued freedom, victory over their enemies as they went into the land. God would drive them out before them, prosperity in the land, and unhindered enjoyment of their covenant relationship with God. What was the sign of this covenant? I, I think it's the Sabbath day. Observe the Sabbath, God said. Every seven days, a day of rest, just as I, God, rested in creation week on the seventh day. That was a sign of this covenant, and they were to observe that. The connection to Christ in this covenant is that the law was basically insufficient to make people right with God. And what the law was unable to do to justify people, Christ did, right? By fulfilling all the requirements of the law 
for the people of God. All right, you following me? Kind of? Because God was faithful to his covenant with Noah, guess what? Sinful mankind continued to live and multiply and increase in the earth. Because God was faithful to his covenant with Abraham, his descendants did indeed become a nation, the nation of Israel. And because God was faithful to his covenant with Moses, the people of Israel finally did get to settle in that promised land and enjoy a measure of prosperity. And that set the stage for the fourth covenant promise, which was God's covenant with King David. David, the Davidic covenant it's sometimes called. And God took this shepherd boy who became Israel's great king and presided over a wonderful era of prosperity in Israel's history, and one day he made a promise to that man. It's recorded in 2 Samuel 7, 16, and God said this to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Thinking back on that, in one of the Psalms, David would later write this in Psalm 89, 3. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So what was the covenant promise to David? Well, it was the promise of a dynasty, (laughs) an enduring royal dynasty in Israel headed by a descendant of David. One of your descendants, David, will be on this throne forever. And I think the the throne was the sign of this covenant, this symbol of authority and power. And what's the connection to Jesus? What's the connection to Jesus? One day, a descendant of David, a son of David, will take the throne of his father, David, in Jerusalem, and what? Rule and reign over the nations. That day's still coming, right? We still look forward to that day. That's the Christ connection. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to David. Now, did you follow all that? (laughs) Some of you did. Each of these covenants represent successive steps in the plan of God to form a family, a people of his very own who will be devoted to him above all else, who will worship and love and serve him and one day live with him forever in eternity. But, but you've got to understand this. While each of these covenants was very impactful, they were all insufficient. They were all inadequate. They didn't get the job done in a full and final way to fulfill God's larger purpose. That's why when Jesus came along, he referred to the new covenant. That's the fifth covenant, the new covenant. And in the new covenant, all the promises contained in all the other covenants find their ultimate and complete fulfillment. Let's note a few things about what's called the new covenant. First, the new covenant is often presented in contrast to new covenant, old covenant. That's right. When the Bible talks about the old covenant, what does it refer to? It's a great question. It doesn't appear to refer to God's covenant with Noah. It doesn't appear to refer to God's covenant with Abraham or David. It appears to primarily refer to the covenant of law given to the Jews through Moses. So here's what happened. 
God's people settled in the land of Canaan. The kingdom emerged. David and his descendants led Israel. But what happened is that down through the centuries, the religious leaders of the Jews had turned the Mosaic Covenant with its Ten Commandments and its 603 other regulations, they turned it into a way of spiritual salvation. Basically saying this to the people, look, you can earn your way into God's favor by keeping all these laws. They made it a way of spiritual salvation by which people could be saved or justified before God. But that was a misuse of the law. That wasn't the law's purpose. God's law was never meant to be a way of spiritual salvation through doing good works. We know that, right? God's law was a covenant that was meant to establish the conditions by which Israel would be blessed in the land and prosper in the land. Keep my covenant. I will bless you and give you victory over your enemies and so forth. And it also was a a kind of measuring stick to show the people how far short they fall of God's holiness. Like we don't keep the law (laughs) perfectly. In fact, part of the law was this sacrificial system of the slaughtering of lambs and goats and blood being shed all the time. And that was designed by God to be used as an object lesson. What was the lesson? Well, Think about it. Every little Jewish boy growing up in that culture, every little Jewish girl, there was this never-ending you know, parade of slaughter and blood, and, it, but they got it. <laughs> they got the picture. Uh, apparently, sin is really serious, and apparently it can only be atoned for by the shedding of innocent blood. Do you think they got it? I mean, day after day, week after week, month after month, it was meant to point people to their need for a sinless savior who would spill his blood for their sins fully and finally and offer them his own righteousness as a gift received by faith but see like like humans are prone to do the jews twisted it and they turned god's law into a performance plan by which humans could basically try and save themselves self-righteousness self-salvation and so paul would later write this in the new covenant (laughs) new testament second corinthians 3 6 god has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You see, what was was missing from the old covenant was a power source. What was missing from the old covenant was a, a new heart, a transformed heart that beats with the heart of God. What was missing from the old covenant was the 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 desire and ability to keep the law. All all the Old Covenant did was give the law. Here here it is. Here's the rules. But did not impart any desire or power to keep it. As a result, the law ended up just condemning people. The letter kills, it says. And so there was a need for a new covenant. You know, the new covenant was even foretold in the Old Covenant. Did you know that? The Old Testament, God gave Jeremiah, for example, an understanding of how God planned to solve all of mankind's issues through a new covenant. Listen, just listen as I read. Jeremiah 31, the Lord speaking. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke... Though I was their husband, see the covenant language? 
We were married. We were in covenant. And they, they went after other gods. Verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law, where? On stone tablets? No. Within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. There it is. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Is that not awesome? That's the new covenant. It is glorious. The new covenant revealed the full extent of God's grace. The covenant of grace in relation to mankind. Understand there was some grace within the old covenant, but in the new covenant, God's grace is revealed in all of its fullness and his glory is magnified. Now, have you ever seen the acrostic for grace? G-R-A-C-E, you know what it is? God's riches at Christ's expense. You ought to write that down. <laughs> what, is, what is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. That says it well, doesn't it? God's riches. Just think about some of the treasure trove of wealth purchased for God's people by Jesus' blood in the new covenant. Just think about it. Forgiveness of all of our sins. I mean, a slate wiped clean. Anybody have any sins on their record from your life? Two or three? Billion? Um, in the new covenant, those are wiped clean. Even the ones you haven't committed yet. How can God do that? Well, he's outside of time. <laughs> That's a wonderful, glorious riches of his grace. The righteousness of Jesus, his perfect straight A record, imputed, credited to us who believe. The gift of the Holy Spirit, who comes to indwell the people of God and empower us to want to love our God and be faithful to him and beat sin and Satan. How about the new changed heart? Remember that heart of flesh for a heart of stone, that the heart that loves what God loves and hates what God hates. Eternal life, living forever under the gracious reign of King Jesus, an eternal family to belong to, a beautifully prepared new garden city paradise to live in, a spiritual inheritance, treasure in heaven to enjoy with others for all of eternity. You know what? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that the new covenant is better. It's better. Better than the old covenant. You and I should thank God every day that we live in the era of the new covenant. I mean, can you imagine living under the old covenant with all those stipulations and regulations and you have to go out to the backyard and get an animal and slaughter it and shed its blood and go to the temple and all that? Man, we're, we're free from all that, right? Because Jesus fulfilled it. He fulfilled it as the Lamb of God. The new covenant is better, so much better. It offers better access to God. It has better promises. Listen to God's word from Hebrews 8. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on what? Better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. 
The new covenant is so much better. The old one is fading away. And what makes the new covenant better is Jesus. Jesus. Just another reason to love him. Another reason to give him your life. Another reason to enter into covenant with him. He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive promised eternal inheritance. Hebrews 9 says, Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, here's, here, here it is. Way back in the Garden of Eden, God pledged himself in a covenant promise to deal with the problem of human sin. And through Jesus, he did. He did. He made good on his promise. Thank God that the new covenant fulfills all that fell short in the old covenant. Now, where does this intersect your life? To some of you, that just seems like a lot of old history, like with the nation of Israel, and doesn't seem real relevant. Here's where this intersects your life, okay? You can trust God. You can trust him. His word is good. His handshake is good. His signature is good. Everything that he has promised so far has come to pass, just as he said that it would. You can take his new covenant promises for your life to the bank every day. You know, some of you, 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 you ever get depressed? You ever kind of get despairing and disheartened about things? You know, the boss is piling it on at work, right? Or you get crosswise with your spouse and things aren't going well there. Or the, you're getting squeezed in your financial life. You know, your team loses. You know, horrible, horrible things. And um, when that happens to you, I want you to, th here's how I'm, I'm wanting you to think. And I'm hoping this will be the effect of this sermon on you today. That you'll go, you know what, though? Yeah, all that happened. But I belong to God. And we're in covenant together. And this is no casual thing. This is a big deal. And nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ. Nothing! Not life or death or any other thing can separate me from his love. I belong to Christ. He promises me his peace in my heart no matter what I'm going through. His peace and his presence. His presence brings his peace. It doesn't matter. I can endure anything because God is with me. I'm in covenant with him. He loves me. It's an unbreakable promise. He promises to preserve my soul forever. Even if my life gets snuffed out, my soul is eternally preserved forever. You realize, don't you, that this life is like, this little 60, 70, 80 years is like this. It's a blip on the screen of eternity. And eternity extends from like here to Singapore. You know, I mean, it's just, there's no comparison. God's covenant promises are secure. And you can rest, rest in that if you know Christ. The other thing is this. This is no casual thing. This is no casual, easy come, easy go. I'll tap into God when I need him, and then when I don't need him, I just kind of do my own thing. No, this is not that. Did, did you get that impression? This is covenant. 
This is commitment. This is all in. This is he's mine and I am his. You are my everything. This is not a casual relationship. This is a consuming relationship. That's your whole life. And some of you are not there. I realize that. You're not there. But my hope is that you have a deeper understanding now of covenant and what God is all about on his end and what he's calling us into. This is huge. And you know, in the old, in the old covenant, covenants were ratified with blood. Even Moses, when he read the law to the people, when he was done, you know what he did? He took some blood and he sprinkled it on the people. <laughs> Imagine, you know, the blood kind of streaming down your face and then he sprinkled it on the law to signify people. This is life and death stuff we're talking about here. This is not some little piece of your life, you know. This is not I surrender one-tenth. This is I surrender all. And then when Jesus came, our Lord, our Savior, when he came, remember the night he was betrayed, he was with his disciples in the upper room, they were celebrating Passover together, and he took the bread and broke it and distributed it and said, this is my body given for you, broken for you, partaken in remembrance of me. And then he took what? The cup. And you remember what he said? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it. He didn't just sprinkle blood on us. He said, consume it. I'm going to fill you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in you. We're going to be one. That's what this covenant's about. That's what this covenant's about. There's a sign of the new covenant. There's two of them, actually. The first sign of the new covenant is what you do when you enter the new covenant, and you know what it is? Baptism. Going into the waters of baptism, buried in the likeness of Jesus' death, raised to walk in new life. That's the sign of entry into the new covenant. If you've not been baptized, but you're a believer, you need to be baptized. That's the sign that you're, that you're in, the outward sign. But there's a second signed to this covenant, and this is the continuing one where you pledge, I continue to pledge my devotion and faithfulness to my Lord, my covenant God. And you know what that is? It's communion, which we don't just do once, we do often, right? And, and we're going to share communion right now. And um, if you're one of the couples serving communion, if you can go ahead and get ready for that, and there's going to be couples distributed all around this room, and they're going to have a tray with wafers representing the broken body of Jesus and a, a goblet, a cup with juice in it representing the blood of Christ. And when you go up to them, they're going to say, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood shed for you. And my hope and prayer is that today you'll be able to participate in that with a greater understanding of covenant. Like this is serious. He is mine, I am his. We are his people, he is our God. We're in covenant relationship with him forever. We are not to go whoring after other gods. We're not to invite other people into our marriage bed. This is exclusive. No one should take the place of our God in our hearts. God's people put God first. So let's pray together and prepare our hearts to observe the sign of the new covenant, the continuing sign, which is our pledge of 
faithfulness to our God. So Lord, I ask now for the people of God, the covenant people of God, that you would, I pray that you have opened up all of our eyes a little bit more to the expansiveness of this new covenant and a deeper understanding of what it means and what it signifies. Lord, we confess our sins before you. We know even as your people, we've fallen short. May the blood of Jesus Christ, your son, cleanse us from our sins. Lord, as we partake this morning, may, as we go up and partake of these elements, may it represent a desire in our heart to say again to you, you are my God, we are your people, we are faithfully devoted to you. May that be what we're saying this morning. I pray in Christ's name. So when you're ready, you can go to one of these couples or pairs and um, observe the sign of the new covenant.